大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. I really would like to invite the State Party to、uh, respond to the many reports、uh, about the millions of people who have been detained in this region. I would ask you to please disclose details on what grounds people. Are sent to the so-called re-education、uh, camps. In recent months, we have seen satellite evidence that these camps are significantly increasing in size, doubling, tripling, even quadrupling in size, both detention and re-education facilities. I would like to make it clear that introducing measures of de-extremization and other preventative measures do help maintain social stability in Xinjiang and ensure the people there of all ethnic groups live and work in peace. It is supported by the people in Xinjiang. It seems, though, that the government felt that just placing like a police officer next to each citizen wasn't really quite enough. You try to get inside of people. You try to change literally people the way they are, the way they think. Create anticipatory obedience through extreme fear. Another province, another Muslim province in China, has signed a formal agreement to learn from Xinjiang's. De-extremification or counterterrorism effort. I wonder if that learning means that they will put 10% of their Muslim population into camps. Hello and welcome to the Merix Experts podcast. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for joining me. As you've heard, there we're discussing Xinjiang today, that vast province in China's northwest, home to many ethnic minorities, among them some 10 million Muslim Uyghurs. Gay McDougall, whom you've heard there at the very beginning of our podcast, is a high-ranking UN human rights official. Last summer, she expressed deep concerns over the many re-education and detention camps in Xinjiang, where tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, Uyghurs are being held. The Chinese government long denied the existence of these camps. When Beijing finally acknowledged them, officials described them as vocational training facilities, but still gave no details. So, what do we know about these camps? How many are there, and why did the Chinese government set them up in the first place? For answers, I turn to the independent researcher Adrian Zenz. He was one of the first academics to provide an in-depth look at the system of detention and re-education camps in Xinjiang. And when we met in the Merrick Studio here in Berlin, we first discussed numbers: how many camps are there, and how many people are being detained. These are very difficult questions. Obviously, the Chinese government、uh, does not provide us、uh, with a lot of information on this topic. According to my personal estimates, looking through different documents, government documents,、um, other types of evidence, we are really looking at putting together like a puzzle with different pieces. The Chinese government itself has said that it is seeking to establish a three-tier detention and re-education network in the area. Now Xinjiang has about 1,200 administrative units between the prefecture and、uh, higher city level and the township level, and my personal feeling is it is likely that we are looking at a thousand or possibly 1,200 re-education facilities of some kind. Some will be larger, some will be smaller. Obviously, this is just a speculative estimate. 
1,000 to 1,200 facilities, as you say, but there's a difference between detention camps and re-education camps, or is that more or less the same? No, there is a difference, although in some instances detention facilities uh, perform re-education. However, detention facilities are really there to detain people, suspects, for a short time in order to determine whether they will be pressed with formal charges or what will happen to them. In Xinjiang, these facilities can be used to determine whether people are being put into re-education or whether they're being put into prison or whether they're being released. The re-education camps, or as the Chinese state wants us to believe, vocational training centers, they're really about political indoctrination. Now, in actual reality, they also function similar to prisons. They're highly secured compounds with barbed wire, cameras, etc. And uh, in these facilities, the detainees uh, spend many hours each day with political uh, lessons and memorizing party songs, slogans, learning the Chinese language, etc. And uh, according to your estimates, how many people are detained in these facilities? Because the estimates vary actually quite widely. I've heard various figures. So uh, how many people are being held in these facilities? According to all the evidence that I have seen and looked at, I personally would be very surprised if it was less than at least one or two, say several hundred thousand. Uh, upper level estimates can range up to a million or more. It, this uh, depends on various sources of data. For example, there's a leaked document that whose authenticity cannot be verified that claimed that close to 900,000 were detained just in certain minority regions. We also have information from local police officials who mentioned detainment quarters that a certain percentage of the population, 10%, in some instances 20 or more percent of the population, they are supposed to detain and often have a hard time meeting these detention quotas. Now, in recent months, we have seen satellite evidence that these camps are significantly increasing in size, doubling, tripling, even quadrupling in size, both detention and re-education facilities. We also hear of more and more people being detained. It is not very common to hear of people being released. Therefore, at the present, I think we need to probably increase our estimates it is possible that more than one million uh, Muslim minorities are kept in some form of detention in Xinjiang. Could be even more than that. But we don't know. There's not hard data on it. But you have studied some statistics, um, not so much about the camps, but because there are no public available statistics about the camps. But you have studied other statistics on which you have based uh, your estimations. You just mentioned satellite pictures there. But what do these statistics tell you about these camps? Other evidence about the camps describe some of the sizes, how big they are, uh, how large the dormitories are, what kind of buildings they're supposed to have on the compounds. For example, some of these camps are supposed to have space for a lot of students. They're supposed to have a kitchen, heating facilities, bathroom facilities, teaching buildings, dormitories, etc., etc. Security features are being mentioned sometimes in great detail that there's going to have a very comprehensive camera system, that they're supposed to be surrounded by high walls, that they're supposed to have barbed wire, that they're supposed to have watchtowers, hardened doors, etc. Some of them say that the security equipment in there must meet the specifications required for prisons or formal detention centers. So what are the conditions then like in these camps? Uh, what do you know? What have you heard? How inmates, how people held there, how are they being treated? The conditions can vary. One thing we have heard consistently is severe overcrowding, that thousands and thousands are being kept. In many instances, 
30 or 40 people are being kept in a very small space so that not all can sleep at the same time. We know that um, they have to study for many hours a day. There are different accounts of how people are being punished. Uh, some forms of punishment are kind of a lesser form of torture maybe. They're being kept in a metal suit for 12 hours or they're being deprived of food, deprived of sleep. There's an intense atmosphere of fear. In other instances, and this could pertain to detention centers or different types of facilities, we hear of actual forms of torture, of rape even, of uh, very intrusive uh, physical examinations, of forced medication, of women uh, being given medication that stops them from having a menstruation, that makes them feel emotionless. Truly horrific uh, testimonies have come out, especially in recent times. When the government finally admitted to the existence of these camps, um, they actually said these were training f facilities. So what you, from what you say, uh, you, you, you certainly don't buy that. Well, uh, interestingly, a form of vocational training was integrated into the re-education system, along with political indoctrination classes. So it is quite likely that from an early stage on, some of these facilities uh, provided some kind of vocational training. However, that was not the main purpose. The main purpose was political indoctrination. This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is the independent researcher Adrian Zenz. We're discussing the Muslim minorities in Xinjiang and China's policies in the region. Now, it's not just the camps that mark a dire human rights situation in Xinjiang. People are subjected to all sorts of controls of surveillance and restrictions. And the authorities use rather modern technology for that. Uh, what do we know about that? You know, Xinjiang has spent uh, billions and billions for very sophisticated security infrastructure, a camera system that can read number plates of cars on highways, of checkpoints where people have to get out, scan their ID, but also have their face scanned, facial recognition to match their identification. We have uh, car scanners. Um, we have entire city surveillance networks that work as huge computer and networking systems to link all data together that's being gathered when people buy tickets on public transport, when people uh, enter certain places, when people fill up their car, they have to swipe their ID. So the government, even buying sugar, people who buy too much sugar are being questioned by the police because it uh, can apparently be used to make bombs. So all this kind of information is being gathered together, centralized and analyzed through increasingly automated ways and also the use of artificial intelligence, also what is called as predictive policing. Predictive policing uses statistics and algorithms in order to analyze, could this person be dangerous to the public? And that's very susceptible to um, racial profiling and racism, basically. So why is the government doing all that? I mean, what is the thinking behind all these measures, uh, the detention camps and that widespread uh, surveillance that you just described? Now, the Chinese government was called uh, into action when the Uyghur groups were not only able to launch bomb and knife attacks within Xinjiang, but also able to carry out these attacks outside. A very, very bloody knife attacks at the Kunming train station, the Tiananmen Square car bombing, etc. So the government was looking for a more in-depth solution to the problem. Now, it really ramped up its policing 
and securitization strategy under the new party secretary of the region in late 2016 and 2017, uh, nearly 100,000 positions for new police and security forces were advertised within a space of 12 months. Now, it seems, though, that the government felt that just placing like a police officer next to each citizen wasn't really quite enough, right? You try to get inside of people. You try to change, literally, people the way they are, the way they think, create anticipatory obedience through extreme fear. And this re-education drive is achieving exactly that. It is producing intense fear, not only for those who are inside the camps, but also those who live outside, knowing they could uh, be detained at any moment. But that is sort of traumatizing people, isn't it? Traumatizing is the word. And um, we see signs of trauma and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in camp survivors, in those who have come out and have testified. Some have memory loss. Many have severe sleep disturbance at night. Many of them have nightmares. They are in tears when they share their experiences. Many of them are deeply traumatized. Now, you said uh, that uh, one of the strategies uh, behind all these measures was to sort of instill fear, fear that will prevent people from even thinking about any attacks on the Chinese state. But many people would argue that such extreme repression that you talked about uh, will not make people more loyal to the Communist Party, but instead it breeds resentment and anger and could create the sort of extremism the government is trying to fight. I mean, surely the Chinese government must have thought about that. Well, we would think so, but unfortunately what we can see is very much the case. There are uh, indications that those who either have survived the camps or whose family members are still in the camps are extremely angry, extremely frustrated. And I think what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang is extremely worrying to all of us, not simply because of the massive human rights violation that it represents in itself, but also of the long-term consequences. But in the short run, these strategies do pay off because we haven't really seen any major attacks in Xinjiang for quite some time. We haven't seen any uprising comparable to the, the, to the one we saw in, in 2008 in Tibet. The Chinese government has a point there. I mean, they have basically pacified, the, although by force, the situation in two provinces that uh, do worry them a great deal. Yes, they have, let's put it this way, they have reduced the number of publicly reported and known incidents known to us to zero. Uh, of course, things may be happening that are being suppressed because of the, uh, the lack of information. But yes, on the surface, uh, there has been a strong pacification. But it looks like that comes at the cost of alienating all of these populations in the long run. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said earlier when that new uh, party secretary in Xinjiang came in, that he uh, really stepped up all these security measures. But um, Xinjiang was never a place that was really free of repression. There was always a sort of palpable fear. Uh, when you traveled in Xinjiang, you could feel it, that people people were afraid of the Chinese authorities. And it felt like you were sort of tra sometimes traveling through... Um, a country that was sort of colonized. So how have the tactics changed? Yes, the Chinese themselves have called it tough preventative measures. Tough preventative measures in this case means that you round up an entire share of an entire ethnic population, say 10 or more percent, and put them in camps for months on end, separated from family, from children, 
they don't many of them don't even know what they have done some of them just had like a quran verse on a, on a smartphone which just a couple of years ago was no problem and the quran translation being used in xinjiang is actually a government approved translation so you're looking at a situation where the securitization has stepped up so much and some of that also has been made possible through technology the chinese have made huge technological progress not only in what they've acquired from abroad but in developing their own uh, technology surveillance and recognition being fed into computer systems who now have the capacity of recording the video and the audio of an entire city and storing it analyzing it the ability to connect the dots and to track a person and a person's movement have increased so much that the pressure on people and people's knowledge of being tracked and and surveyed has increased so significantly and have these measures actually spread to other provinces that have a sizable muslim population like ningxia one of the neighboring provinces or to other areas of china a lot of these methods and technologies were first tried in major cities such as shanghai and beijing and they are being piloted in several parts of china in xinjiang they're being implemented on an unprecedented scale and as you say xinjiang indeed is kind of has evolved into a laboratory for some of these methods where they're also being tested and uh, we are seeing signs and evidence that what is developed in xinjiang is being exported and just recently another province another muslim province in china called ningxia as you have mentioned has signed a formal agreement to learn from xinjiang's de-extremification or counterterrorism effort i wonder if that learning means that they will put 10% of their muslim population into camps now uh, what you have described are human rights violations on a large scale how is xinjiang being discussed in the rest of china do the majority han chinese accept the harsh treatment of their fellow countrymen or is there any debate about that there is an extent of debate um, on chinese social media on this a lot of chinese approve of tough measures as to what they see is a restive uh, problem population and the chinese uh, in some way are unfortunately quite prone to throw the particular group of the same kind of ethnic group into one pot there's not a great tendency to differentiate or to distinguish and unfortunately a lot of them do approve of a tough stance although if they really heard of some of the the scale and the gruesome details some at least some of them would have second thoughts there is also evidence that some don't approve uh, especially those maybe who have more information or more reflective but generally the chinese population typically supports a strong central government uh, that implements tough security measures to keep everyone safe some critics of the chinese approach in xinjiang say it's a police state human rights violations the measures are targeting uyghur culture religion uyghur language and custom how far do you think would the chinese government go in sort of attacking uyghur culture or even destroying uyghur culture well how much further can it go i mean the religion is basically banned the mosques are padlocked education is being switched to chinese a lot of counties and minority prefectures are banning the use of Uyghur outside the classroom in Uyghur schools so that they get used to speaking Chinese to each other. Uyghurs are uncertain which parts of their culture and religion can safely be practiced. Dress is being controlled, beards, veils are all being suspect. People are being put into re-education camps for doing some of these things. Even loyal party cadres who have just published something on Uyghur culture in the past are being detained apparently for that reason. and are being put into re-education camps for an indeterminate periods of time. 
So, I mean, how much worse can it get? That's my question. But then again, what is the ultimate aim of this hard treatment of the Uyghur people? It is to finally bring a population that has been uh, troublesome and restive for Beijing for a long time since it marched into the region in 1949 and took over, is to finally achieve complete control, to eradicate competing ideologies, to instill a party ideology, especially a new generation. You see you know, children being separated from parents, put into closed uh, educational institutions while their parents are in re-education camps, separating families to produce long-term generational change. The aim is this kind of long-term generational change, that a new generation grows up in Xinjiang that is forgetting a lot of the cultural and religious roots. And becomes totally Chinese and forget their own culture. Yes, they can retain some of the more superficial aspects of their culture and language. In some ways, actually, the, the Chinese party is not resistant to people believing in a religion as long as the party comes first in their hearts. The party has to come first. If that is the case, then the outer shell can have many colors. There is mounting international criticism of the situation in Xinjiang and the approach the Chinese government is taking. Do you think that uh, this sort of criticism is having any effect? Um, is there any chance of China changing its approach to Xinjiang anytime soon? Well, the international criticism is certainly having some kind of effect. Whether it's having the effect that we hope for is a different question. The international uh, criticism is certainly has forced China into a proactive uh, propaganda offensive, doing state television footage of happy, uh, how do you call them, <laughs> students, vocational training students, etc., with air-conditioned apartments, and so on, and all the good that the state does. Now, if they logically follow through on that, some of these students will have to be released because they're supposed to graduate from this supposed training. It's really hard to know how the Chinese state is going to follow through on that. It does, I think, also depend on the extent to which other countries will also get behind the criticism, apart from a handful of Western countries. Very hard to say. Overall, uh, the Chinese state has shown itself to be capable of all kinds of things and of not shying away. This apparently is very important to them. They were really willing to go to a lot of extremes on the Xinjiang and the Uyghur issue. So, a grim picture. Human rights violations in Xinjiang on a scale not seen in decades in China. Little hope that the Chinese government would change its course anytime soon and rising concerns for millions of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in China's northwestern regions. Adrian, thanks a lot for talking to me. That was the independent researcher Adrian Zenz. He was one of the first researchers to provide an in-depth look at the system of re-education camps in Xinjiang. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening and... Bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.